Hello and welcome. You're listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our own solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. I'm Hugh Osborne, and as always, I'm joined by Hannah Wakeford and Andrew Rushby. This month, we're going to do a little discussion session on exoplanet conferences, how to go to them, which ones you should go to, what you should do when you're there, how to organise conferences in case you're looking into that, our very biased opinions on what should be done and what you should do while you're at those conferences. So hopefully this should prove interesting for those of you who have never been to a conference before, but maybe are planning to go in the near future. And even if you've, you know, gone to every single exoplanet conference in the last decade, hopefully you can... uh, learn something from our discussion. So let's start off by maybe just sharing which conferences we've been to in the last year. Should we do that? Oh, God. Jesus. (laughs) In the last year, everyone went a little bit ham, didn't they? I mean, the last big one I went to was Exoplanets 4, which was in Las Vegas last year. Mm, I was also at that one. That was excellent. (laughs) So that was an interesting location for a conference. Uh, Oh, terrible location. But I guess we'll get to that. (laughs) Well, I thought they were trying to... Las Vegas in general are trying to like reinvent their image as a conference center kind of place. So I think they have the infrastructure for it. Yeah, but even the people from LA flew to Las Vegas, which... <laughs> right, which is not okay. I've done, no. that, I've done that drive a few times. It's actually quite fun. But. I guess we'll get maybe on to, to the, that sort of aspect of conferences. Uh, yeah, that's true. Point. That's one big, part, big aspect of it. That was in May in 2022 yes. in Las Vegas. Wow. It's the fourth in the series. Since then... I was at a meeting in Denmark, which was a Gaia-based workshop meeting for a specific topic on astro-seismology and presenting to them what we need to learn from them for exoplanets. That was a couple of, that was like a month later. Uh, And then I had the National Astronomy Meeting for the UK in July 2022. I was at that one too. Oh, yeah, you were as well. So we recorded something there. Didn't we? And then I don't. I think there was a nice big gap until I had one in May this year, the Spring Symposium, which was held at STSCI and was focused on exoplanets this year. So mm-hmm. that one rotates in topic. They have a Spring Symposium every year and they pick a topic in advance. This one happened to be on exoplanets, so I went to that and then had the exoclimes one. So actually been fairly busy looking at that schedule. Yeah. What about you, Andrew? Well, folks, if you've heard our most recent news episode, you could hear some highlights from exoclimes and uh, me gushing about how, how great I thought the meeting was, really well organised. Um, I've been pretty low on the ground when it comes to conferences compared to Hannah's, at least, in terms of in-person attendance anyway. I've done a few virtual conferences. I was invited to the British Geological Society to give a keynote there, um, but there was an industrial action on that day, so I, I did that one virtually as well. So actually, exoclimes was my first a large in-person conference and what I mean by that there was a couple of like one-day conferences at the Geological Society that I've attended a couple of like CPS which is my like research uh, group spread between UCL, Birkbeck, MSSL we've had a couple of, of small one-day meetings and I mean ExoClimbs isn't huge but it was my biggest my biggest meeting what was it Hannah like 200? 200, 200 delegates at ExoClimbs but I think you touched yeah. on something there that you, you you had one which you gave virtually and I, mm. I think that we we shouldn't certainly nowadays discount virtual conferences and attending a conference 
from your home or from your office is still attending a conference and and there are certain ways to do that there are ways that you can do that that maximize that experience that you might get in person but it really really depends on on the ability of the facilities to host those those virtual conferences but i do think that those definitely count and you should making sure that those count as something that you have done and you have 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 attended this year no absolutely but i hope i didn't mean to disparage them because they are valuable but i think we'll, we'll probably get into it that there's there's definitely a different dynamic with the in-person conferences there's yeah. pros and cons to, to both certainly and if we take a step back out of it just the very idea that you can attend a conference virtually even before the pandemic was was pushing it and i think there are a number of reasons for that, some of them political, some of them economic. But in many ways, the pandemic pushed this idea to the forefront by necessity that perhaps we should we should move towards the virtual realm for things where we can. Now, this has benefited several groups of which I'm not I, I cannot speak to be a representative, but folks who maybe are less able to attend the conferences in the first place through physical, economic or other issues that might prevent them from attending. So I certainly wouldn't wish to disparage them, but I think there's definitely a very different dynamic that develops between the, the virtual conference and the in-person one. The ability to attend the meetings while you're sitting there, maybe in your PJs, enjoying a bowl of cereal and your coffee, that's fantastic. I mean, you can do that in an in-person conference as well. You'll probably just get a few side eyes. <laughs> but I want us to take a, a little step back. And for some of our audience who aren't in the academic sphere, what is a conference? Why yeah. are we saying about going to these yeah, you know, beautiful and remote locations such as Cardiff and Warwick <laughs> and Exeter? What is a conference and why do we have conferences? A conference is the main conduit of communication in the scientific world, I would say, right? You say main? That's interesting. Well, I, uh, at least beyond your immediate colleagues and the people you work with typically, right? Mm -hmm. It's where you hear about the general what's going on in your field and even beyond your yeah. field, right? Um, and where you meet most of the time, at least for me, the colleagues that I now work with closely, I initially met at a conference and now, you know, I work with them, uh, email them all the time. But it's the place you also go to meet people, right? Mm -hmm. But obviously the typical structure is you sit down in a big room and you listen to scientific talks for a week, maybe... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Maybe even six days if you're in the US. Right? Mm. Uh, but at least in Europe, it's Monday through Friday quite often. Or sometimes, I guess, there are three-day or two-day conferences, right? Yeah. Yeah, as I mentioned, there's you know, a couple of one-day conferences that you can have that are more like a meeting. There are some semantics involved, right? Uh, and I think it's important, uh, as Hannah said, to, to differentiate between Yeah, them. so I, I would differentiate between those one-day meetings. There are two different kinds that you can have. And I have heard the various ones exist, especially, you know, centered around exoplanets. Are, is it a meeting of people that have been invited because you already work with them? Is it a meeting that is centred around trying to bring people together so that you do all end up working together? Or is it a general meeting where you are essentially hearing a series of talks, people advertising the work that they've done, and you go away and you go, oh, that was interesting, but you don't necessarily make that connection to go and, and work with that person moving forward. So I think that's the difference between what I would call a conference, where you have a, a little bit more passive aspect of your listening to talks and maybe not every single one of them will result in a connection yeah. and a workshop or a meeting where it is focused around bringing those people together to go forward from that meeting and work on something yeah so i do think there are some differences at that level i think there's quite a few ways you can divide up the venn diagram of conferences right there's mm. obviously 
national versus international. That's that's tends to be most astronomers will go to the national or a or national conference and maybe mm-hmm. a couple and then one or two international conferences a year, uh, which brings together people from from all over the world. And sometimes I guess there are like more localized continent, you know, Europe based or or North America based conferences, but those tend to be international anyway, right? People from Europe aren't excluded from going to North American meetings, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, as you say, there's there's also the division between more general conferences and more meetings, which are internal to some sort of group which is already working together. So that so within a certain consortium or a team which is centered around some specific instrument or telescope or concept. Concept, yeah, exactly. And then that you could also divide up workshops and summer schools away from that as well, uh, as separate entities, separate things you could you could do. Yes, yeah, so as it started at the top with the national meetings and what the, the structure of those is like and, and how exoplanets really fits into that. And we can look at some of the more general astronomy meetings, which are hosted by the astronomical societies of that country or of that region. So it, typically you're here talking about AAS. So this is the American Astronomical Society, and they host a meeting twice a year, once in the winter and once in the summer. The winter meeting is is much more popular for certain topics and rather than the summer meeting. So you'll hear talk a little bit more about that in terms of the exoplanet side of things. In the UK, we have the National Astronomy Meeting, which is hosted by the Royal Astronomical Society. In Europe, actually happening right now is the European Astronomical Society Meeting. So that's actually countries uh, all over Europe coming together for that, including the National Astronomy Meeting community of the UK going to that as well. So you have these different regional ones. And the key about these national meetings, they are on all kinds of astronomy. They are not focused on exoplanets at all. There isn't a specialist focus. In fact, they often run in parallel sessions. So you'll have multiple topics being talked about at once in different rooms, which are then organized by individuals who run that particular session. So the organising committee of that national conference does not decide what goes on in each and every session. They have people who organise each of those topical sessions. They run simultaneously. But then everybody in that conference is often brought together in the mornings or around lunchtime or something for what we would call a plenary session. So this will be a 45 minute talk or so on one topic. And there'll be about six or or eight of them during the week, which hopefully span the wide range of astronomical topics that are covered in that week. So those are much, much bigger meetings with with often many hundreds to many thousands of people attending. Yeah, I mean, AAS being the the key one, right? There are up to what five thousand attendees of that sometimes it's it it sounds crazy i've never been to a double as meeting right that is very different from some things that andrew's experienced oh, in. Yeah. in so in your field what is it that you get in your field the equivalent at a double as meeting would be adu for okay. for my for planetary science and earth science folks and certainly you know i'm i'm seeing some of the the sessions that hannah was talking about organized in a very similar way adu has twenty five thousand attendees wow. uh, on average so about five times that. So it, again, it requires multiple parallel sessions happening, you know, happening at the same time uh, as, as Hannah expressed there. So for me, that's the big one. 
again, the American Geological Union, so that is run uh, in, in the States. Um, it's usually in San Francisco, but uh, they've been moving it around while they've been redoing the Moscone Center, but there's li li limited places that can host that many people. It literally is a, a, a town of people arriving. Yeah. And your approach to a conference like that is very, very different from a conference with a couple of hundred people. How do, how do you approach a conference with that many attendees and that much going on in such a short space of time, considering how many, the numbers? Well, with apprehension, Hannah, if I'm honest, <laughs> me personally, <laughs> uh, I, I find the concept, you know, fairly terrifying. I've done a couple of AGUs now. I was even privileged to give a, you know, a keynote for one of the sessions. But yeah, I find it extremely overwhelming to be sur surrounded by that many people at the same time. So I think key is, is planning uh, and organisation. And normally, uh, you know, I know it's the case for AAS, AGU are pretty good with, uh, with providing infrastructure, right? Whether it's some sort of virtual or physical booklet about, you know, try to plan your, plan your day out to some degree and then the importance of having some time to yourself as well which maybe we can we can talk about a little bit later on in the in the discussion but to specifically have some time where you can you can remove yourself from 25,000 people if you can and take a bit of a break to to refocus yourself I think that it is very important for for something of that size so what, what are the key I think so talking about these national meetings what are the key things that we're looking for from those national meetings compared to something that would be much more specific to either the people we know or the, or the subjects that we know. So from those national ones, what what is the draw for attending them? I mean, honestly, in exoplanets, in the European and the UK ones, at least, I don't think there is a big draw. <laughs> I think compared to AAS, which does get a lot of exoplanet, you know, that tends to be where the US exoplanet community goes to interact. There might be one day in EAS or one day in NAM where there's exoplanet talks. And there's four days where you go and watch other talks or you, you go to, you know, go to a room and work somewhere. At least that's my experience. I don't think it should be like that necessarily, but I think that the draw is much lower for those meetings than uh, than for something like AAS. Or, I mean, part of that is because we have these specialised national meetings in the UK and in many European countries devoted to exoplanets. And that is kind of what pulls people away from the national meetings to go to these specialised meetings on exoplanets instead. I don't know if that's your experience. It's kind of my experience, but through time. So when I started, we didn't have specialist exoplanet meetings in the UK, which brought the whole UK community get together. That happened at our national astronomy meeting. That is where you met everybody. I remember when I started my PhD, and I still say this, I think the National Astronomy Meeting is a really, really great experience when you're starting out, because it allows you to look at what everybody else is doing, not just in your field. And I think that's really, really important. What is the state of astronomy in your country? What is the most popular thing that is happening? Are you in something that is fighting for funding? Or are you in something that is currently rolling in the dough? And I think that perspective is really, really important to get. I also remember the first national meetings I went to, I met a lot of people in different fields in various situations, and I still communicate with them. You know, they do galaxy stuff, and I don't necessarily care or understand about it that much. But, you know, I still talk with them and understand, you know, what they're up to and, and where they're at. And I think that that is an important part of the networking is that you shouldn't be so insular. So I do think that they're important, but I do also think they have their place, especially with exoplanets, which have seemed to have created their own break off 
sessions. So in the UK, as, as Hugh alluded to, we have the UK Exoplanet Meeting, which happens every single year. It is essentially our sessions that would be normally run at the National Astronomy Meeting, but we span them off so that we could run three days worth of them instead of just having 90 minutes or two 90-minute sessions of them. So that community really meets at that place instead of going to to our National Astronomy Meeting. But as you said, Hugh, I don't think that is the same in America. AAS is a really important place for that networking. There are a lot of higher up people in the structure that is very much more dependent on funding through that AAS than our National Astronomy funding comes through in the UK that you would only meet at AAS. So I think it, it really depends on the structure of your institution and the structure of your country and the way that that funding works that matters the most. So from some of the examples that we've already mentioned here, Hannah, you know, you've obviously just organised exoclimbs and, mm-hmm. and Hugh mentioned exoplanets. What's the, what might be the difference between those two conferences? Similar size, would, would that be fair to say, but different focus? No, they're not the same size at all, actually. So the, these would be what we would call the international specialised meetings. And these are international in that they welcome people from absolutely anywhere over the world. It's, you know, the other ones we talked about, the national ones don't, but they are focused on their regions, right? So these international conferences are specialist subjects. And for exoplanets, that specialist subject is exoplanets. Yeah, it's much more general. So it could be anything. (laughs) It's absolutely anything. Last year in Las Vegas, the exoplanets four. Yeah, Exoplanets 4 in Vegas was 605 people, which is humongous. Exoclimbs, however, is a specialist subtopic within that. It is focused on the climate. So it is really focused on atmospheres. And we don't really dive into anything else. We don't really necessarily care how you detected it. We just want to know what you've measured in its atmosphere. We don't really care if it's rocky or if it's a gas giant, but does it have an atmosphere? So it's a very much more specialist topic in the exoclimbs. And that is actually different in exoplanets because it's limited specifically in number. So we actually have a application list. And for exoclimbs, the number previously was 150. We increased it to 200 this year for the first time to allow for a a summer school to be attached to that. And we'll talk a bit about summer schools in a bit. But that expanded our numbers to 200. And actually, we we had to reject over 100 people from the applications. So it depends on whether you're actually limited. So exoplanets, however, exoplanets 5 will be in Europe next time. So it will be held in Leiden next summer. That's going to be 750 people that they'll be able to fit in the venue. And that's actually just venue limited at that point. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a real consideration. Like I say, there's maybe two or three places you could do AGU, given the size of it in the States, um, you know, comfortably. So I think that is a real a real consideration in terms of you know, physical physical limitations. Um, but it's interesting, is that like there's a, a scope and a scale, right? And it's a relatively small conference, but still a wide, uh, you know, international attendance for exoclimbs, for example, or folks from... Where was our furthest attendee? Chile, I think. Chile, Japan. Uh, Chile and Japan had to travel the furthest. Uh, very, very close competition uh, from the UK to California, though, for those. So um, yeah, I think looking at our attendance numbers, what's really, really interesting is that we were, from the attendance, a relatively central location for those people, which 
is fascinating when you think about it. If only we had the infrastructure to support the travel, though, Hannah. <laughs> right, that's the problem. Well, I think that's because of the international nature of the conference itself and, and the specificity of the topic. People want to go to that. So even if we move it to North America, you just kind of change that point on the globe you're rotating everybody from. So then it's just about sheer numbers. And I think that that's a really important part of the conferences themselves. We'll be very interested to hear a little bit more in terms of the organisation side of things. Maybe having to reject a few people is, is, is a difficult thing to do. But how do we get to that stage? It's a horrible thing to do. I really don't like doing that kind of stuff. But so what we did for Exoclimbs, so I was running the organising committee for Exoclimbs this year. And we had an amazing group for our science organising committee. So for a conference, you often hear two things, a sock and a lock. The SOC is your science organising committee. They're in charge of bringing together what you're going to see during the week. What is the science that's going to be put on offer? How is it going to be presented? How long are the talks going to be? Who are your invited speakers? Are there going to be posters? That kind of thing. The LOC, the local organising committee, is responsible for running everything. So have they got the venue space? They're in charge of printing out the badges, the posters, um, making sure that there is space for the posters to go, getting the boards in place. Is there accommodation needed with the conference? That kind of thing. So the LOC is really responsible for all of those things that happen whilst you are there and how they happen. And the SOC is responsible for what happens when you are there. There's usually a little bit of crossover, right? And there's a lot of crossover. So for Exoclimbs, myself and Nathan Main were in charge of the whole conference. So we were running the entire thing. So we were both on the SOC and the LOC. And basically the LOC had co-chairs as well who were taking responsibility for making sure that that checklist was really run through and everything was in place because that's not something that me and Nathan were able to do all by ourselves. So we had an amazing team for Exoclimbs. But when it came to the applications we solicited applications from the community you know asking questions you know what do you want to present do you want to present why do you want to come to exoclimbs it is a limited venue exoclimbs is special in that everybody stays in the same place everyone has breakfast lunch and dinner together you are all then sitting through the talks together. It has not got parallel sessions. It is got excursion time so that you should all go out and either work together or socialise together. And it is all about building those connections in the community. So it's a very, very different conference in that we aim to create those links across the board. So the application process, I handed out to all of my SOC members completely anonymized responses so I stripped all information from them and, and we went through carefully everyone's responses and stripped oh my supervisor so we removed those names we would we rejected certain things from people's so that it was completely anonymized and they ranked the responses we got so the abstracts based on whether or not they should have a talk or a poster their responses to why they want to attend exoclimbs based on whether or not they think they should attend exoclimbs. And for our summer school as well, we had why do you want to attend our summer school? So they had four categories in which they gave them a score from one to five. And each of the applicants had at least four to six of our SOC members that went through it and gave it a score. And then I took all of those blind scores and I, I took the average and standard deviation of those and I made a, a ranking list for each aspect of that. And I went down through each of them. I had a cutoff of 35 talks that I could give out 
Uh, I had 100 posters that I could give out and I had 200 attendees in total, which would include as many of the summer school as possible, but we were kind of limited to about 50 to 60 participants in the summer school. And the overall goal of that was to make sure that we had a nice balance sheet. And the beautiful thing that happened with that anonymous scoring is that I took all of the statistics of who had applied because I had all the information. I didn't do any scoring. It was quite a nice job for me, actually. And I took all of the statistics. Who had applied? What were the ratios of faculty to postdoc to PhD students? What were the ratios uh, on the pronouns that were supplied? And so we asked for pronouns. Um, some people didn't supply them. In fact, we had uh, about 40 people who didn't, uh, 40% of people who didn't. So that was a category that I used as well, you know, didn't supply them versus the pronouns that were supplied. And I broke it all down. And the anonymous scoring produced an almost exact ratio to the applicant pool. That's how it should work, right? Yeah, yeah. fantastic. Who anonymous does that? That's how it should work. Indeed, it should be representative of the people who are, who are applying. So absolutely, that makes sense. Good work. And it was absolutely beautiful to see. It was really, really interesting. And then it was about working out whether or not uh, that fit into the scientific program that we put together we had invited speakers we had invited keynotes and reviews and sessions and, and topics that we wanted to cover throughout the week so then my job was to take everything that the, the SOC had done you know in those rankings and, and apply it to the conference and see if I could create something that was balanced whilst being true to those scores so I, I made drafts of the schedule just taking the top ranked numbers I then looked in detail at those and I had about 10 people with the same rank at the bottom end of that. So there was room for shuffling around in terms of my scientific program because every, there was a certain number of people ranked in identically. So I was able to shuffle that around, looking to make sure that there was balance in each of the sessions. You know, is there a good balance of, of male to female presenters? Is there a good balance of Europe, the USA versus the world? Uh, we normally hear the UK versus the world over here um, for various tournaments, but in conferences, especially in exoplanets, it's very much USA versus the world. Um, so was there a good balance in that? Could I make sure that each time we were hearing different voices and trying to make connections between the topics that we'd set out from our invited speakers? Could I put the talks in a certain way such that they related to each other? And that's actually quite a hard task to do when you've got anonymized random ranking. But it actually worked out really, really beautifully in the end when we had an amazing scientific program from a really just brilliant array of people. In the end, we had 204 people that attended the conference. We had 17 different countries represented at the at the conference. Like Andrew said, we, the furthest that we had was people coming from Japan and Chile. And we had a really good balance between, you know, faculty, postdoc and PhD. So, you know, the smallest fraction was like 24% was faculty, 34% postdocs, the rest PhD students. So it was a really kind of nice building structure. Exoplanets is really still very, very young. So we have, we wanted to bring in a lot of PhD students in, but we also had the summer school, which brought in a lot more. The fun statistics that I had is Michael's win overall. We had the most attendance from Michael's in our conference list. <laughs> which is a bit silly. And Michael Zhang, who we talked about in our, our previous episode, talking about the news and some highlights from the, the conference, wins on both most common first and last names. So well done to him. <laughs> He's ugly the most representative person <laughs> name-wise at the conference. And but, you know, talk. just to stop talking, to, to kind of wrap up what Exit Climbs is, we have 204 participants. We were five days 
overall 45 different talks, 100 posters. We had big excursions. So we had three different excursions people could do, which were hikes or a vineyard or another nice hike. We had a barbecue, a beer festival, a banquet, and a ton of science in there as well. So it really is a community building conference series. And that's why I absolutely love it and have absolutely no problem with all of the humongous amount of work it takes to run these things. Well, that was a great, absolutely great summary, Hannah. But I wonder if maybe we could focus in on the summer school a little bit. Mm. More. Maybe that's something yeah. folks haven't heard about that much. Maybe you're considering going to a summer school. Uh, what is one? Why should we do it? Hugh, have you have you got some insights? Have you been to one yourself or, or given a talk at, at a summer school? Put you on the spot there. I tried to go remotely to the Sagan summer school, but it was nine hours deconnected in a uh, time zone so i failed <laughs> like so the second like, summer school is like the preeminent astrobiology summer yeah. school that usually runs before i oh, know it doesn't run before after yeah it runs in july cycle, i think yeah um, so it's in two weeks time so the second summer school is a i think they call it a workshop which is aimed at advanced advanced undergraduates or early graduate students and postdocs to learn about different topics and they kind of change the specific topic each year but it is always focused on exoplanets this year it's on characterizing atmospheres for the next 20 years so we'll be talking about all different aspects of how you would look into atmospheres and it really is lessons rather than scientific results being presented it's a how-to so a summer school is a is exactly what you might experience in undergrad it is a course that is being taught like a condensed module, really. Yeah. 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 And they're often three days, right? So they're not often too long. I think Sagan is, is very unique in that it's an entire week. I mean, there are some that are two weeks. There are some that are two there's weeks. A, there's one going on right now in uh, Outback, which is about how to create a space mission. <laughs> ah, <laughs> which sounds quite oh, fun. Well, that's very and that's specialist. a two-week-long uh, summer school, yeah. Yeah, and I recently gave a, a virtual talk at an ESA microgravity summer school. That's also oh, two wow, weeks. Nice. Uh, the first week is is the typical, as we're discussing here, lessons and, and talks. And then the second week was was planning their, their low gravity mission. Ah, I've normally attended one week ones. That's interesting. But I wonder if those, because they're linked to instrumentation, does that require it being that much longer and, and that kind of you're changing specialty partway through from understanding the science drivers of that to the instrument and engineering drivers and and how they tie together. I guess it's just a function of how in-depth they want to go, right? And it seemed they were keen on like deliverables, which is a very NASA term. Like, what do we get out of this conference? Is it is, are we adding value to the you know the people who are attending? Are they are they getting something out of this? So I think there was. I had actually a student who attended it um, before I gave the talk the previous year, and she said it was wonderful, and you know that they were working on a paper together, and then you know they got certificates and stuff. So uh, as much as it was a um, a learning experience, it was also a a networking event, I guess, and a way mm-hmm. of getting up to speed with with where that particular research is, uh, and getting everyone to maybe that same level so that you could have you know that that broad discussion so example exoslam getting everyone to understand the exoplanet atmospheres to the best that we can understand them right now so that when the conference starts that we're kind of all at the same rough level obviously we have our specialisms and then we can have a big discussion together and it makes a little bit more sense a bit more accessible for for people coming into the field yeah and one of the key things that you get from a summer school uh, as opposed to a conference and and you might get these at different kind of things like workshops but it's hands-on sessions it's tutorial sessions where you 
are in exoplanets, that all often means sitting at your computer running some code. But it's that hands-on aspect of applying yourself to that challenge. And that's very much part of the learning process that you go through. And as as Andrew was describing, our exoslam before exoclimbs, this is the first time we'd ran a summer school connected to exoclimbs. And one of the key things that we had was driven by COVID and the lack of conferences that a lot of these people would have attended before in that these are your cohort. This is your international cohort of PhD students that will be working in your field. You'll be seeing their names in papers and you'll want to have friends and collaborators. This is where you're meeting them. So get to know each other and band together because what you're going to see in the coming week, this is what we said to them on the first day of the summer school, is that there are a lot of old folks like myself here who will be hanging out with their friends who live 5,000 miles away, who they met at a conference years ago. And that's what you guys are going to become to each other. And I think that in that we succeeded. It was brilliant to see just these early career researchers just coming up with ideas together throughout the week after they'd been seeing the talks. So I think summer schools can be a very important part of that networking and and getting to know your international or your national collaborators of the future. Yeah, and I do think, I mean, with my experience with the Sagan School, there are some things you can't replicate with hybrid and online Mm. conferences. Of course, you can attend and you should be able to attend and see the science, see the science um, that's going on. But there really isn't a placement for that in-person socialization that you get at conferences. Mm. And it is a shame because obviously some people, you know, childcare or disabilities can't, can't attend that, can't have that. I think coming back to Sagan, I think it is unique in that it offers in-person and remote and the remote attendance for Sagan. So this year we have about 300 people coming in person. Remote attendance is in the 800 to 900 area. It is a huge number of people. Even 10% of those people attending, that, that's, a, that's a great conversion. And I think that's the key. So a summer school is imparting knowledge. It is a learning exercise. It is a training exercise. You learn something, you apply it. You learn something new, you apply that. And there are instructors. They're not people giving talks on stuff that, you know, promoting themselves it's them instructing you on that scientific method and you are learning how to use that method and then learning how to use that tool so I think in that case online can be really really helpful simply because it's a way of learning we do a lot of learning online nowadays as well so for that aspect yes but if we are talking that kind of networking that cohort building it really does you know attending in-person events is really, really key. So I think the biggest question we have as organisers, how can we make those events attendable for people with childcare issues, with disabilities? How can we make it so that they can, in fact, attend something in person rather than relying on these online aspects, which have their drawbacks? That's a bit, AGU is great for that. They do have on-site childcare. Now, when you have a conference of 25,000 people, maybe that's <laughs> something that, that can be can be done, especially yeah. when the registration fee is what it is. It's a very expensive conference. It's like $1,000, isn't yeah, it? At least. So, you know, at there's least. definitely an economy of scale w- 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 with these things. At, at, at some point, um, you know, it's just not, it's not, 
unfortunately economically viable. Uh, and I think maybe the, the pandemic undermined a lot of that to prove that actually it is totally economically viable if we just go ahead and, and, and try and do it. And actually it provides value that we wouldn't have been able to quantify before having have done it in the first place. We'll probably realise more of that as we as we go on and yeah. learn about how to, how to bet, hi, hybridise our meetings, I think. But can we just very quickly address the elephant in the room here in that the three of us have never been to a conference together, right? The three <laughs> of us in this virtual studio have never been. So Hannah and Hugh uh, obviously have, and, and yeah. I, I and Hannah were at Exo Climbs recently, but still, how many years of, of Exo? It's crazy, Exo isn't it? now, and yet we still haven't. We're, we're what, seven years? Yeah, it is completely ridiculous. So it's not always conferences that you meet folks at <laughs> and you can no, collaborate true. with people without never seeing them at conference. We did. We, we all but met at conferences. We just never met together. We were together. You know, we each side of together. the triangle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, but I'm confident soon, soon we will. And we'll have to have a, a celebratory recording or, or some, some event to celebrate that. Maybe for our 100th episode, which is just coming up soon. I don't know if we can meet at a conference within a couple of months. Well, no. when we think about UK exoplanets... I'm probably not going to be able to attend. That's I'm the not, unfortunate I'm thing. Um, okay, so it's not going to be that one either. I'm thinking Exoplanets 5. Exoplanets 5. We'll have to get Hugh to turn up to things. I'll go to Leiden, yeah. Okay, awesome. Well, thanks, Hugh. <laughs> <laughs> no, because this is the thing, right? You've also got that aspect of the different career stages. So which conferences do you go to at the different points of your career? I left the UK before... I mean, you had already left, Andrew, you're already in America, then I left and then Hugh, you were kind of jumping all over the place. We were never in the same continent at the same time, so we wouldn't yeah. have overlapped at AAS. Andrew doesn't go to AAS, he goes to AGU instead because he's insane. Um, and <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> it's uh, way too big, way too expensive. Yeah. Um, so we never really overlapped at those more specialist conferences, which would be a local ones, so like the UK Exoplanet meeting. Well, the, the more general ones, I guess, because the more specialist ones we also wouldn't have overlapped at because our relative specialisms are different. Yeah. yeah, I know everybody that's been listening to us for seven, seven years now has been like, well, they all work on Exoplanets. Yeah, well, there are, it turns out they're very, very different parts of exoplanets. Um, and we're all very picky. So <laughs> The problem, especially when you get to like late postdoc and, and professor stage, is that you don't want to travel four times a year for a week in a new place. So you have to pick and choose which conferences, you know, which two or three conferences you're going to. And it has to be the ones most related to your subfield. And so it's another reason we don't all you know, go to 10 conferences and see each other at three of them, right, per year. But I, I think you've hit on something there that's that's really important. And this is something that we had a session on at Exit Climbs, and that's, that's climate change and how, as astronomers traveling for these kinds of conferences, are, you know, increasing our carbon budget, essentially, by all of these flights uh, and different things. So one of the discussions that I think is really important, and I have this with my group, is, is it vital for everybody to go to this conference? Is this the place we all need to be? Or could one person from the team represent the work that's being done? That's what I took from that that session. Yeah, so I've had this discussion, you know, actually from, from my perspective as a PI, as somebody who runs a team, it was actually a monetary perspective. I 
think about the carbon footprint, but really I'm like, I can't afford to send you everywhere and it'd be pointless for you to do so. So from a money perspective, I want to send you to the thing that will be best for you and your future career. So I'd sit down with my PhD students right at the beginning of their PhD and go, listen, strategically, I want to send you to an international conference where you're going to meet as many people related to what you do a bit later on in your career than right now. So while you're seeing this PhD student going to this conference and it's going to be great fun and you'll probably get a little bit of FOMO, it's important for them because they'll be leaving before you do. So I'm going to have to hold you back and say we're going to the one next year. So we kind of spread it out a little bit in terms of who goes where and who presents what. And I think that strategic decision, you know, it's born out of maximizing the networking, maximizing that person's potential to make connections and the financial, which it costs a lot of money, we've already discussed. But then at Exoclimbs, it was really beautifully pointed out that that is also a really good way of, of minimising your carbon footprint for this. And I think that that's something that we really need to think about. Do I need to go to that conference in New Zealand or Hawaii? Yeah, the New Zealand conference came up, uh, Extreme Solar Systems in New Zealand. Yeah. Didn't know what to do with that. Should we go? Should we not go? Is it relevant? All the discussions that Hannah just raised. Well, I do think that you can also work on the side of the organisers to make sure that your location for your conference doesn't involve everybody taking a 24-hour flight. I think that would be a nice thing to do. I mean, I recently I, we, there was a bit of a internal friction within Chaos, which is the consortium that I work in. Mm. They organised a conference in Kiruna, the north of Sweden, okay. where nobody works, right? Everybody had to get up there by flying. Nobody, well... A couple of people took the train. I, I took the train most of the way. But yeah, it was an extremely high impact conference when if they'd have put the conference or the, the meeting somewhere in Central Europe, then more than 50% of participants could have got there by train, right? So I think that there's definitely this consideration of where you can place your conference to minimise the carbon footprint. And that should be... And also hybrid, you know, hybrid mode can help, right? The people who can't make it because of climate concerns and travel concerns can still get something out of the conference. Yeah, so if you're interested in exoplanet conferences, you can find a list on exoplanet.eu. Um, and just to spin off where the next load of conferences are going to be, we've got Pasadena in California, we've got Lituva, we've got London, we've got Santa Cruz, we've got India, we've got DC, Slovensko, uh, we've got France... We've got Germany, we've got another Germany and another Germany. Central Europe, I suppose. What's going on in Germany right now? Really? <laughs> <laughs> in Baltimore in the US, Texas, again back in Pasadena, in the Netherlands, in Chile, in Patagonia in Chile. So right down the bottom of Chile. Oh, yeah. That's going to be a lot of people traveling for that one. Like we said, we've got New Zealand coming up with the Extreme Solar Systems 5 conference series, which is, again, another one of these very, very broad exoplanet, bit of everything, maximum five-minute talks, kind of very rapid-fire parallel sessions. We've got the Netherlands again, and then the US, and then Portugal, and then Germany. It's places all over the world. So the question is, can you find one that might work for you that's potentially more local? I don't know. Yeah. That's a question for you and your team and your finance officer. Yeah, it's usually, it's usually them having this like final say. Yeah, <laughs> I think it is something that we need to make part of that conversation. And that's something that we are starting to see more and more. Yeah. 
Well, you might have, um, again, I don't want to put you on the spot here, Hannah, but the decision for the next location for ExoClimbs is one that the steering committee for ExoClimbs mm -hmm. will make, of which you remember and others are as well. So, I mean, do you do you take that into account when you, th uh, sorry, certainly into like, let's interview Hannah about conferences, uh, ExoCast at the moment. But I mean, you, you, I guess you, you do take that into account. We do take that into account. And, and it is important. In fact, um, you know, there, there's been a couple in the past where people haven't been working there and we've questioned you know is is there a reason why we're going to this venue is there a reason why we're, we're coming to this place it is always part of the conversation i'm actually quite new to that conversation this is my first exoclimbs where i've been part of the organizational structure i am now on the steering committee to help organize the next one and guide the the next host of exoclimbs into creating the environment we intend it to be but I think it is an important part of it, and I do intend on making it an important aspect of the decision-making process. I remember when I was, um, you know, a, a postdocing for for Nexus, you know, the Nexus Exoplanet System Science. So we we're putting together loads of conferences, and certainly in the US, I'm sure our US listeners will identify with this. There is a, a dichotomy between the the two coasts. You're either on the east coast or the west coast. And you're doing a conference in one of those two places. So in fact, we wanted to try and and break that uh, a little bit and actually put a conference right in the middle of the country to see if we could get you know, firstly, people from the Midwest who are also doing doing good science, but also maybe we're, you know, equally spaced from both coasts. It did require a bit of traveling. It was in Laramie, Wyoming in the end. And I, for reasons that I can't go into here on the show, it was one of my favorite conferences of all time. It was fantastic. <laughs> there was karaoke. There was me and John Grunsfeld. It was fantastic. I'm just going to leave it at that. But one of our PIs was based, I should say, at, La at Laramie, and she wanted to take the conference and, and have it there. And essentially, you know, was proud to host it at the University of Wyoming. We're happy to have it there. But a lot of people said they they like this approach. Firstly, a place they probably would never have gone. Uh, secondly, yes, they had to travel, but then so did everyone else. So it didn't feel like anyone was necessarily being picked on. Folks from Baltimore, folks from California, you know, we still, we still had to get there. Uh, and it was really fun when we all got snowed in together uh, as well. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I think I think this is this is something that people are considering a lot more now, at least in terms of locations, um, and then trying to incorporate the hybridization um, element of it as well. So I, I think we've kind of taken everybody on a bit of a whirlwind tour to be honest about what conferences are and what different kinds of conferences there are and, and also the considerations that we want to be making in potentially as we move towards the future become a little bit more enlightened as how we can do this better for ourselves and for the planet so don't forget to look out for our news episode later this month and let us know what you think about the show on twitter and other social media at underscore exocast and on our website, exocast.org, where you can find all of our previous shows. You can help support the show and the Exocast team by heading to buymeacoffee.com forward slash exocast. Each coffee is just $4 and every donation over $15 will get you a shout out on the show. Thank you to all of our previous donors. You have really helped keep the show going. You can also get your hands on some Exocast merchandise, t-shirts, stickers, tote bags, and more, all at exocast.threadless.com. Exocast is edited by Fergus Hall and is available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Exocast. You have been listening to Exocast. The Exocast team is Dr. Hugh Osborne, a KOPS Test Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Bern in Switzerland, Dr. Hannah Wakeford, Lecturer in Astrophysics at the University of Bristol, and Dr. Andrew Rushby, a Lecturer in Astrobiology at Birkbeck, University of London. Our podcasts are edited by Fergus Hall and are made possible through your kind donations. 
Find out more on exocast.org. Exocast. I have exoplanets.